2. Spirituality and Fellowship First, let us consider the notion of spirituality. What is spirituality? Is it a mood? Is it, as was claimed by the leaders of the Church mentioned above, an appreciation of the mystery and wonder of the transcendent God? Many ideas of spirituality abound today. Unfortunately, very few are biblical. Spirituality, if we must use the term, is summed up in the phrase trust and obey. That's it. To be spiritual is not to have some mystical feeling, nor is it a mood of contemplation or piety. It is simply trusting and obeying God. If our worship is to be spiritual, therefore, we must seek to obey the Bible in the way that we worship. Only then will our worship be in spirit and in truth. John 4, 24 How is it, therefore, that chorus singing or any other form of preparation or spiritual exercise for that matter prepares people for this worship whereas talking to each other does not? Before I can accept this, I need to see some explanation, that is, biblical explanation of this assumption. I need to understand why it is that the cessation of talk, the singing of choruses, or the creation of a quiet contemplative mood equips me for worship better than talking to other believers does. And I need to be shown that this is what the Bible says is what equips us for worship, and indeed whether in fact the Bible requires this mood of worship of us at all. Because if it does not, this whole notion of spirituality is blown clean out of the water and we had better start thinking again about what spirituality is. The implication is that talking in church is not spiritual, that communication between believers, that is, fellowship, prior to the service starting, is a hindrance to worship and true spirituality. But I object to this attempt to curtail Christian fellowship in the church, which really amounts to no more than an attempt by the chief spiritual persons in the church to inflict their own mediocre musical tastes and their own ideas of spirituality on everyone else, with the implication that, unless one follows suit, one is insensitive to the spirit. And I object because I do not think it can be defended biblically, indeed, makes assumptions that are not defensible biblically. In short, it is unbiblical because it undermines the biblical concept of both spirituality and fellowship. The idea that worship is a matter of mood, of setting aside the mundane world in which we live in an attempt to attain a higher plane or more spiritual mood or state of mind, is inherently dualistic and assumes a sacred-secular dichotomy that is not found in the Christian scriptures. This concept of spirituality combines elements of mysticism and paganism, but is essentially a notion derived from the Greek dualistic perspective that underpinned the Alexandrian worldview, which has afflicted the Christian church from the beginning and our society at large as well. It is this Greek dualistic heritage that is the source of pietism, which mood worship is a good example of. Spirituality, biblically speaking, is not an attempt to escape from or rise above this mundane world in any sense, but rather the proper dedication of this mundane world to the service of God. Second, I also disagree with the notion that the singing of choruses or hymns is somehow essential to the creation of the right attitude in worship, and if singing choruses and hymns does not in itself create the right kind of attitude, why should we sing so many choruses and hymns in church? Most churches already sing an inordinate amount of choruses and hymns in their worship services, 
there is a significant imbalance between this and the fellowship we get together in church. I can only call the kind of worship we get today in most churches the tyranny of hymns and choruses. Someone once commented that if the words for roll out the barrel were put up at the front of the church, the congregation would probably sing it without realising what it is. I know of instances where such experiments have been carried out with interesting results, namely a tendency for congregations to sing whatever is put up on a screen at the front of the church or dictated from the front by the sing-song maestro, regardless of the meaning of the words, which demonstrates the mindlessness that prevails in much congregational singing. There is a natural tendency for singing, which is primarily a musical activity, to direct the emotions rather than the intellect, so that the mind is not as consciously engaged with regard to the meaning of the words as it is with the music. Hence, it has been observed of musically intense worship services that the emotional intensity reached in congregational singing often relates to musical climaxes, not to climaxes in the meaning of the words being sung, since the two are not essentially coterminous. As long as the appropriate degree of musical intensity is reached, the singing is believed to be a good time of worship, despite the congregations being oblivious to the theological content of the songs. With most traditional hymns and psalms, a proper understanding of the meaning of the words being sung requires the engagement of the mind in theological reflection. And in modern churches, both leaders and congregations tend to abominate the very idea of theological reflection, which is often seen as an activity of the mind rather than of the spirit, and because of this, deemed to be a work of the flesh. Despite the fact that this idea directly and in principle contradicts scripture, hence, even when hymns and songs with good theological content are being sung, the primary effect is often an emotional one that does not engage the reason. Yet Christian worship, according to scripture, should be reasonable worship, that is, worship that engages the mind or intellect. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. The word translated here as reasonable is the word from which we derive our English words logic and logical. John Murray makes the following interesting comment on this verse. The service here in view is worshipful service, and the apostle characterizes it as rational, because it is worship that derives its character as acceptable to God from the fact that it enlists our mind, our reason, our intellect. It is rational in contrast with what is mechanical or automatic. A great many of our bodily functions do not enlist volition on our part. But the worshipable service here enjoyed must constrain intelligent volition. The lesson to be derived from the term rational is that we are not spiritual in the biblical sense, except as the use of our bodies is characterized by conscious, intelligent, consecrated devotion to the service of God. What real value, spiritually, therefore, does this obsession with choruses and hymns have? I suggest that, for the most part, singing choruses before, during or after the service has no real effect on our spiritual state of mind or on the spiritual character of our actions, though many Christians may think it does, largely because they confuse spirituality with a particular kind of mood. 
This is not to say that singing choruses is necessarily wrong. I do not think it is. But chorus singing has become a substitute for worship in many churches today, not an aid to it. Far from preparing us for true worship, I believe that singing numbs our minds to what we should be doing in church. Third, in the worship services of most churches I have attended, there has been no time for fellowship with others. Fellowship is not seen as central to what we do in church. This is unbiblical, because fellowship is central to the biblical concept of corporate worship. Of course, there is often coffee after the service to which we are cordially invited. But this is just the point. Fellowship is an afterthought, an extra for those who want it, or who are prepared to create it. Fellowship is not central to what we do in church. We don't get fellowship as part of what we do in church, so we tag it on at the end. What we do in church is meetings that are inherently fellowship-less. And the truth is that coffee after the service does not provide fellowship for everyone. And even if it does for some, they have to go to church and endure up to 90 minutes of ritual to get 10 minutes of fellowship. But don't expect to discuss the faith over your coffee or anything relevant to it, especially anything challenging. The weather will suffice nicely for pre-Sunday lunch chit-chat. I am not criticising ritual per se, or coffee after the church service, only the balance between ritual and fellowship, the priorities that we have set for what we do in church. Coffee after church services, while in itself entirely laudable, is a poor alternative for the fellowship that the Bible shows us should be at the heart of church life. Fellowship is not sitting bolt upright in a pew facing the front of the church, nor is it singing choruses together nor even kneeling in prayer individually and listening to what is being said by the clergy at the front. Neither is it saying the liturgy together. Again, please remember I am not criticising these things per se, only the balance between these things and the fellowship we get in church. Fellowship is not listening to homilies and sermons or attending organised prayer meetings. The Church of England has tried to remedy this problem with a user-friendly peace slot in the middle of the communion service. But this does not make up for what is so obviously missing in the life of the church. In fact, because fellowship is missing from so much of what we do in church, the user-friendly peace slot is actually embarrassing and awkward for many, especially newcomers, because it only makes sense if there really is fellowship, and usually there is not. Again, I am not arguing that we should not do these things, merely that on their own, and even together, they do not constitute fellowship. And when they take place in a context other than fellowship, they lose much of their meaning. Without fellowship, there is something missing from church life on Sundays, something that house groups on their own do not rectify. My point, therefore, is that Sunday worship in most churches is unbalanced by the near total lack of fellowship, since fellowship is the interaction of people with each other, and this is impossible without communication, without talking to each other something that is virtually impossible to reconcile with the ritual that passes for worship in most churches.